This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 26, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about the spread of technology through the prehistoric world, and David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Sometime between 400,000 and 200,000 years ago, hominins, our ancient ancestors, made a big shift in their stone tools of choice. They went from the bifacial stone tools that had been in use for a million years to a new Lavalois method, one that produced stone tools with mismatched faces. One long-standing question about this swap has been what pushed this new technology across the globe? Did hominins leaving Africa bring the new tech with them, or did inspiration hit in many separate places at different times? I spoke with Daniel Adler about his group's work tracing the origins of this very old new technology in Eurasia. In this paper, we describe an instance of local technological evolution among humans in the southern Caucasus specifically, but also across Eurasia more broadly during a period of prehistory between roughly 400 and 300,000 years ago when some archaeologists think such changes occurred due to outside forces, that is, the expansion of humans from Africa into Eurasia. We were able to find evidence for the use of both biface technology and Lavawa technology. This latter technology is most commonly associated with the Middle Stone Age in Africa and the Middle Paleolithic of Eurasia. And it was through the analysis of these artifacts and published data that we found evidence consistent with the hypothesis that Lavawa technology developed independently and intermittently in many different regions where humans traditionally engaged in biface production. So in other words, Lavawa technology evolved out of pre-existing biface technology. Instead of Lavawa technology originating in Africa and spreading across Eurasia with expanding humans, technological change among humans was local and resulted from deep-rooted evolutionary processes based on a common technological ancestry. How is Lavalois technology different from the techniques used previously for creating stone tools? There are actually 
quite similar. And researchers have noted this before. Regarding biphase technology, humans would take a mass of stone and shape both sides of it three-dimensionally into a specific form, most commonly a hand axe. Most people are familiar with a hand axe. looks like it's often symmetrical and pointed, and it's shaped on both sides. Taking that shaping concept and then altering it a little is what leads to Lavawa technology, where, again, one takes a lump of stone and they shape two surfaces on it, but instead of that being the end of the task, they actually remove particular flakes of a specific size and shape. And that's the goal of the technologies. The flakes that they would then use to hold in the hand for cutting or perhaps even hafting, whereas in the biface technologies, the actual biface, which is the goal, and the flakes that are produced in the process of making it are the waste. You call one biface, and that's because both faces are sculpted. But yes. the other technology, the faces are dissimilar because one is shaped and the other is made by the action of lifting the flake off the stone? Yes. For Lavawa technology, both surfaces are shaped as well, but they are demarcated as such. There's an upper surface where flakes are actually being detached for use, and that's the exploited mass of the stone. Under that is the unexploited mass. So as they remove flakes, they work down, and the two surfaces get closer and closer together. What advantages might this new technology have offered the hominins of the day? That's an important question that we really can't answer at the moment. It really is speculative, but there are recent studies that suggest the raw material consumption is more efficient using Lavalois technology. One is more mobile using Lavalois technology in that you can carry these Lavalois flakes with you and use them and resharpen them, whereas hand axes are kind of heavy and bulky and they were typically produced, used, and dropped where they were made. So it might be a technology that allows for greater mobility, more standardization in the actual flakes that are produced and how they're used. Your results for this paper are based primarily on a site in Armenia. Can you describe that place? What is it like? What did you find there? Sure. The site's Norgari 1, and it's located outside the capital of Yerevan in the Razdan River Gorge. And it's situated on an ancient floodplain of the Razdan River. What's interesting about the site is it was in a very active tectonic area. So there were periodic eruptions of the surrounding volcanoes that spewed out, among other things, ash plumes. Those ashes settled on the site. We can date those. But more catastrophically, there were periodic eruptions of lava flows. And these would actually come coursing down the river valley and seal the floodplain and effectively dam the river, and so you get lake formation behind that. And over time, through tectonics and erosion, those dams would be breached and the river would resume its course and you'd have a new floodplain develop. The floodplains are what attracted humans because there were plant species there and animal species to hunt and eat, so it was an attractive ecological area for hunters and gatherers. But the crazy thing about the site is that it's actually situated between two basalt flows. So it's got a basalt flow beneath it, there are floodplain deposits, and then it's capped again by another lava flow. So it's a very weird site. We normally dig down from a surface in a site, but at Norgari 1, we have to dig into a wall of dirt beneath, or I should say between, two massive lava flows, which presents all sorts of practical challenges. And did that basalt cap help to preserve the site? Well, yes. I mean, that's what's so interesting is most sites such as this don't get preserved because river valleys, or I should say floodplains, the rivers can be slow and deposit sediment, which is nice for the archaeologists because it buries our artifacts, 
or during periods of high flow, they can actually erode the sediments and wash the artifacts out. So having a lava flow on top of your site is really nice in terms of preservation. And how do the artifacts that you found here at Norgari compare with other finds around the world? Well, we have good evidence from Africa, South Africa in particular, for the early development of Lavawa technology, earlier than Norgari. That's not in question. And there are sites, evidence for Lavawa technology appearing periodically and then disappearing in various locales throughout Eurasia. Our material is a little different in that it is coming from a secure, sealed stratigraphic context where mixing can be ruled out. So it's not a case of biface material being somehow mixed with Lavalwa material. They're there together in a very tight stratigraphic and archaeological context, which we've also dated very nicely. That's what sets the site apart. In addition, there are other artifacts that we didn't expect, such as big blades and interesting scrapers that we don't find parallels for except in the Levant. If an archaeologist were to find all of this material on the surface just sitting there, they would assume, nine times out of ten, that they're looking at many different archaeological time periods being mixed together. And what about the hominins that were using these tools and techniques in this place? Were they the ancestors of modern humans, or are they <sighs> Neanderthals? What do we know? Oh, these are, the, these are the questions people love to ask and <laughs> that we archaeologists are loath to answer. I will say I don't know for multiple reasons. One, we have very few fossil remains from this time period across Eurasia, and they're very diverse morphologically. So we tend to lump them all together under the name archaic Homo sapiens or Homo heidelbergensis. These are catch-all terms in which we just dump this morphologically variable fossil record. It's also behaviorally quite variable, and we assess behavioral variability through the artifacts we find. It's not a static period. Different people are making all sorts of different artifacts. At Norgari, they're making the full range of different artifacts that we see represented singly at different sites. Who they are, I can't say. I would say these are all archaic Homo sapiens, which simply means that they predate modern humans and they predate Neanderthals. Okay. As you mentioned before, these findings seem to support the idea that this technology arose in different times and places. If that is the case, what does it mean for earlier studies that follow the path of Lavalwal technology out of Africa? It means basically that those earlier studies are incorrect. I would add, though, that those earlier studies were based on the available archaeological data at the time, which were very limited. There was an apparent temporal pattern where the earliest Lavalwa material was in Africa and the later Lavalwa material was in Europe. And so with the evolution of different species in Africa, it seemed like a plausible hypothesis, and it was one that was proposed and one that we can actually test now that we have better data. What it means, ultimately, is that different humans, different members of this amorphous group, Archaic Homo sapiens, were capable of producing a wide variety of different stone tool types, as and when they probably needed to, rather than having some sort of demographic movement bringing new artifact types into different regions. And how long has this site been under active investigation? We found it in 2008 and carried on excavations that year and then into 2009. We've returned every year since, sampling for dating, sampling for isotopes, sampling for volcanic ash. Um, The work is ongoing, and then this summer we're planning a major field season where we're going to excavate deeper layers that we just discovered. 
Wow, that's so exciting. It sounds like, to me anyway, is a fresh find. Like, that hasn't been around for decades. Oh, no, it's, it's all brand new. And the beauty of it is people have been saying a lot about this time period in this region based in, almost entirely on surface finds. They, again, they attribute different artifact types to different human species to different time periods when, in reality, we can demonstrate at Nargari 1, the same group of people were making all of these different types of artifacts at the same time. Dan, thanks so much for talking with me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Daniel Adler and colleagues write about the spread of a very old new technology in this week's issue. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on space bubbles. The ionosphere is one of the many atmospheric layers surrounding and protecting the Earth from things like cosmic rays and the harsher emissions from the sun. It's called the ionosphere because the gases in this layer are stripped of their electrons, or ionized, by radiation from the sun. The ionosphere extends from about 50 kilometers to 1,000 kilometers above the surface and has what are known as plasma bubbles inside of it. So now your turn, Dave. What exactly are plasma bubbles? Well, they're basically turbulent pockets of ionized gas, and they're big and they move fast. And we know that they could be a problem for radio signals, which really gets us into the heart of this story. Because in 2002, American forces fought one of the bloodiest battles in Afghanistan. This occurred because there was a helicopter that had been shot down that was full of Navy SEALs. Another helicopter went to rescue it, but the dispatch accidentally sent it to the exact same location where the Al-Qaeda rocket had originated in the first place. And so the command post was essentially sending the second helicopter to its doom. They tried desperately to radio the helicopter, but they couldn't get through. This resulted in, indeed, the second helicopter being shot down, a 17-hour firefight, and seven lives were lost. Okay, now bring us back to space bubbles. Well, this team of researchers wondered whether space bubbles could have accounted for that because they are known to disrupt radio signals. So they did some observations, and it turns out just by a lucky coincidence that at the time of the firefight, NASA's Thermosphere, Ionosphere, Mesosphere, Energetics, and Dynamics satellite had just completed a pass over this area. And this satellite actually records things like plasma bubbles, and the scientists were able to confirm the presence of a plasma bubble between the battlefield and the satellites that were trying to relay an urgent radio message to the base. There was actually an observation that the bubble was there and the radio signals at the same time were being blocked, but is it correlation or causation? Well, this is correlation. We can't, the scientists can't prove that this actually happened, but all of the conditions seem to be right to explain what happened during this battle. Looking forward, is this something that the military or, or other places where communications are really important are going to start tracking? Is this something that, you know, more mapping will be done for, or can we prevent it from happening? Well, that's the hope that researchers could use this information to be predictive that would help prevent these kinds of things from happening again. Next up, we have a story on kids with rhythm. Dyslexia is a big problem. It affects between 5 and 10 percent of the population. But as a problem of reading and language, it cannot be diagnosed very early. Now, some researchers think that there might be a way to get clues about dyslexia at earlier stages in development by looking at their rhythmic abilities. Okay, so how do we test a kid's syncopation? 
<laughs> well, uh, what we do is, what they did in this study was they took 35 kids. They were from about three to four years old, and they had them play a drum and synchronize their beats to that of the researchers. And these weren't just sort of random beats. These were beats that approximated the rate of stressed syllables in speech. So that when we talk, we actually put emphasis on certain words in a sentence, sort of like I'm doing now, I guess. And the stress that we put on words and syllables actually has a sort of a rhythmic quality to it. And what the researchers want to see is, do these kids sort of pick up on this rhythmic quality, or are they able to replicate it? And might that be predictive of whether they're going to have language problems later in life? Because the idea is if you don't have this sort of syncopation, then maybe you're also going to have problems with language as well. And we have audio of this. So here's an example of... These are the synchronizers right now. And then these are the non-synchronizers. Okay. And top of the synchronization experiment, they also looked at their brain waves and how they are able to perceive certain syllables? That's right. And they want to see their brains process different syllable sounds, what kind of precision they were able to process that, the synchronizers versus the non-synchronizers. And what they found is that the synchronizers fared much better at distinguishing syllables played than the non-synchronizers did. Within the synchronizers, those who followed the beat patterns more consistently also processed syllable sounds more precisely. The synchronizers perform better than the non-synchronizers on multiple tests of language abilities. In fact, the four-year-old synchronizers performed about as well as average five-year-old kids on these tests, where their non-synchronizer counterparts only performed about as well as three-year-olds. So putting this all together, we have these language tests that are predictors for dyslexia or for language learning later in life. Then those correlate with synchronization and perception of syllables. Are they going to actually be able to use this regime of testing to perhaps get early insight into dyslexia? Yeah, if the results bear out, you can imagine a case where a nurse could determine whether a baby is likely to develop a reading disorder simply by attaching a few electrodes to his or her head, looking at brain waves in response to synchronization or non-synchronization. And the reason that's important to diagnose early on is because the earlier you know, the earlier you can start implementing solutions. So this is a short-term study. Are they going to look long-term at these same kids and see how they fare when it comes to reading? Yeah, right. This is actually just the beginning of what's actually a five-year study. So there's a lot more follow-up that's going to be done. Lastly, we have a story on longer-lasting effects of the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster. After Japan's combined earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster of 2011, much of the released radiation went out to sea and humans were evacuated from the contaminated land. But what about the wildlife? There are definitely still animals near the power plant. So Dave, which ones did the researchers look at in this study? Well, they looked at the pale grass blue butterfly, which is a species found throughout most of Japan. And so they were looking at these butterflies both in the field and in the lab. And one of the things they did was they fed them contaminated butterfly food in the lab. How much contamination were they exposed to? They fed them leaves that had been collected 16 to 20 months after the Fukushima disaster. So we're talking about a long period of time, also from various ranges from the disaster zone. So anywhere from about 59 to almost 1,800 kilometers from the power plant. As you would expect, some of these leaves have much more contamination than others. But the researchers found that even on relatively low levels of contamination, they were still seeing a lot of physical abnormalities and low survival rates with these butterflies. They also looked at a second generation, so the offspring of the butterflies in the lab that were fed contaminated food. 
What did this part of the study actually reveal? Well, this was really surprising. that The offspring of the butterflies that were fed the contaminated leaves had even lower survival rates and more physical abnormalities than their parents. But if they started to feed on clean leaves, then they largely reverted to near normal in both their mortality rates and their frequency of abnormalities. The range of contamination, how much radiation that was fed to these insects, overlaps with the range deemed safe by the Japanese government for human food. Are the authors suggesting that this butterfly is a good model to use for safe levels of radiation exposure? Well, they're not. And the reason is is because there's just so much of a difference between insects and people that butterflies may just be responding much differently to these radiocontaminants than people would. But it does raise some really interesting ecological questions because it suggests that even months, potentially years after a nuclear disaster, there's still a lot of problems for wildlife in the area. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about what scientists are learning about ancient human feces. Also a story about what we know and what we don't know about the relationship between dinosaurs and birds. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an update on Ebola, including some grim new projections. Also a story about how anonymous peer review comments may spark a legal battle. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science Site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.